Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Ben Hardy, and this is the next episode in the whole idea of Who Not How, which is one of the books in our ambition series, but this is probably the number one transformative skill that we teach and coach in the Strategic Coach Program. The first one being, of course, that everybody focuses on their unique ability, and that's really what Who Not How is, that when you set a bigger and better goal, you'll be faced with obstacles, you'll be faced with all sorts of hows, and it's not appropriate for you to be doing those hows because your unique ability is in achieving bigger and better goals, but there's lots of great people in the world who have the specialized skills that once you tell them the what and the why of the goal, they'll just actually use their skills and they'll transform your obstacles into the actual means by which you achieve the bigger and better goal. Absolutely. Ben, Ben. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here with you. Before we get started, it's been great meeting you, and it goes back a couple years now since Joe Polish introduced, he gave us the opportunity to meet each other, and we connected right away. One of the things that I've always wanted, and I think I've said this, but I'm going to say it on air. This is the first time I've said it on air. I always wanted someone that I could talk to who had a deep dive into the actual psychological world, the world of psychological research and what lots and lots of researchers and thinkers around the world have already explored. Just from your standpoint, just to start off here, and we're actually dealing with chapter two in the Who Not How book, what resonates about this concept given the path that you've led in life which is you've got your PhD in psychology, and I think you're just a born kind of thinker in this realm about psychology and how how we think about our thinking and what does our thinking tell us about ourselves and what does our mindsets about this, how does this allow us to be successful with our relationships with other people? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I've said this as well on air, but I'll, I'll dive a little deeper. The first time I heard Dan explain who, not how, which was at a 100K meeting, and he just laid out this small diagram, which is on the cover of the book. And I had been studying Dan's work for about four or five years to that point. And so it was just an immediate resonating as far as just how it works. But I mean, why this idea is so interesting to me, one of my favorite ideas in psychology is called selective attention. Selective attention is embodied in the quote from Dan Sullivan, which is that your eyes can only see and your ears can only hear what your brain is looking for. So in psychology, we call that selective attention. Basically, we as people have a very specific filter through the world and we see everything through that filter. And when Dan showed me this concept, it did change my filter. And that's actually what he talks about even in Who Not How is is that once you understand this filter, you can't not see through it anymore. And ever since Dan has taught me that and in studying this concept, you know, and becoming an entrepreneur, I didn't actually initially plan to become an entrepreneur, Dan. I think I've told you that. Mm -hmm. Like, I just wanted to be a writer, but living in the global world we live in, living in the information world, and actually the just practicalities of becoming a successful writer actually require that you learn how to grow a team. If I want to write at the scale I want to, I need to actually live in my unique ability and I have to not do all the logistical stuff. And so it's amazing just learning this principle and seeing the world through it, I notice myself and others getting caught in the how trap a lot faster. So I just see it now. I see when people are being ineffective with their life and with their time, 
that it's because they're not being collaborators. They're still trying to do all the who mm-hmm. they're trying to do all the hows. And I even notice it now, like with my wife, <laughs> like in my family, like a lot of just the logistical stuff we deal with is because we're dealing with hows that we shouldn't be dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so what I love about it is that there's a multiple reasons why I love it. One is, is that you can immediately see why someone's not living their potential. You can see why people, even myself procrastinate a lot more than we should, because we're, we're not just moving towards, you know, getting the right who's in place. But another reason why I love this concept is because from a psychological perspective, I really love the quote, imagination is more important than knowledge. That's a quote from Albert Einstein. But this concept, if someone really understands it, Mm -hmm. pushes a person's imagination and their creative abilities so far because people's creativity and imagination is blocked because they're stuck in house. And what you're inviting people to do is live in a much bigger future. Mm -hmm. And you're pushing people's imagination and their ability to imagine a bigger future. And so I think that if applied, this concept will allow someone far more imagination and creativity and joy because I'll actually see results moving forward. I just think that once we, you know, get this idea out there, it opens human potential and human happiness. And so that's why I love it, man. Ben, the selective attention concept that you just referred to. So what is it about most people's early training in life? They have childhood. It's obviously the family that they grow up in but also the educational system at the primary, secondary, you know, university level. Is there something fundamental about the way individuals are normally educated that kind of almost cuts them off from ever seeing that they don't have to be the how? Because it seems to me that education still is mastering a lot of hows and being a broadly based how person and that the whole question that you can just bypass this simply by being clear about what the objective is and then being able to communicate it in a very clear way that someone else who naturally has the skills to actually pull this off, they would just be attracted to it because you're giving them a chance to actually be useful and helpful and actually to grow in the area of skill that they want to grow in. So I'm just asking because you've given a lot of thought to that and you yourself have just completed a long educational process to get to the PhD level. Yeah, I think that there's multiple things, Dan. I think that the education system is one. The education system doesn't teach people how to be visionaries. It teaches people how to be employees. And and that's how thinking, you know, it teaches people to think in terms of narrowness rather than thinking in terms of collaboration. But I also think that general pop culture or just culture in general doesn't train people to be intentional about their lives. Like one of your core tools is the impact filter. I actually recently bought a house that I'm going to be turning into a cool office. And before going with the agent and looking at different houses, I I filled out an impact filter. It totally clarified what I actually wanted and it allowed me to refocus on the houses that I was looking at. Totally changed everything. If I had not taken the 15 minutes to do that impact filter, I probably would have gotten a house with lower potential mm-hmm. and a smaller vision. And so one of the things that I think, aside from that, the fact that the education system teaches people not to be collaborators, I think that culture in general, and it may have to do with, you know, you've had to read thousands of books and whatever you've done to train yourself at the level of thinking. And I know a lot of it was just in you, but most people's environments, such as their parents or their peer groups or just culture in general, doesn't train people to be extremely intentional Mm -hmm. about their life. That's why I love the impact filter. But part of this level of thinking 
and you would never get this in public education, is to really ask yourself, what do I truly want? What does success look like? And then influencing yourself to get committed to a very specific outcome. You know, one of the things that you've taught me, and it's changed a lot of my thinking is, you know, being a results focused rather than time and mm-hmm. effort focused, you know, joining the results economy. Mm-hmm. If you're serious about being in a results economy, then you need to apply who, not how. Mm-hmm. But most people, they don't have mm-hmm. clear and specific and very intentional results that they're committed to getting. So, you know, I think that for the most part, they're just not trained to think that intentionally about their future and everything about strategic coach and everything about who, not how. And it's why I resonate with you so much is because it's about being very intentional about the bigger and better future. Mm-hmm being committed to those results and then doing it the most effective way, which is you getting out of the way and you creating that vision. Mm. And so I I think that's a bigger part of the problem is that most people don't have that bigger and better future and they're not trained how to do it. Yeah. One of the things, you know, I'd just like to clarify that my entire life for the last 45 years has been strictly with entrepreneurs. So I don't have any experience of non-entrepreneurial work environments. But I read an interesting statement by someone who hires people out of graduate school into corporations. And the question was asked of the person, they said, what the person has actually learned how to do through their entire educational and training program before they enter the corporation, how long after they start working for you is their prior training worthless? And he says, well, if they're really top-notch, like an engineer or, you know, they have some really specialized skills, and this was a technology company, so, you know, they're looking for a particular background, programming skills, and technological work. And he said, so if they come out, like, at 25, 26 years old, he says, probably by the time they're in their mid-30s, everything that they learned prior to coming to work with us is worthless. The reason is we've got them focused on particular projects and they're no longer learning what's going on in the world. So the question came back and they said, well, what do you do when they're worthless at 35? And he said, well, we either fire them or they've already proven that they want to grow beyond their technical skills and they're actually good at collaborating with other people. And so he says they move from being a how person to enabling other people. You know, he didn't go this far, but I was guessing, you know, from the conversation that they have to have a much bigger picture of what their role is. It's not just about their specialty. It's not just about their training. Using your words, they're kind of visionary. They can imagine what a much bigger result is and that their key role is just to get everybody focused, you know, very different skills, very different things. And we're going to all become a team and creating a much bigger goal. And that seems to be partially, you talked about the educational system, but actually they're like throwaway parts. Like the corporations say, well, we have need for this person, but we know that in a not too distant future, we've pretty well burned out this person. We've probably used everything of value and we're just gonna discard them and we'll replace them with someone else. Or they've actually taken a jump. They've actually taken a jump and they've proven that they have a vision of their future in the organization that's way bigger than just their how, their specialty. 
So I'd like you to talk about that because, you know, I mean, we talk about entrepreneurism, but guess what? The majority of action in the world is at the corporate level. You know, I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurs and there's a lot of mythical stories talked about entrepreneurs, but Facebook is not an entrepreneurial company anymore. Google is not, not, these are big corporations. These are worldwide spanning organizations and they don't operate in an entrepreneurial fashion and they can't because the scale is so big. So talk about this because my sense is that, and we're seeing this out of one part of our program, which is called the Free Zone Frontier, where I'm seeing in a way that I had never imagined before, where our entrepreneurs in Strategic Coach, and they have powerful companies, these are in the tens of millions of dollars, and they're now creating collaborations with particular individuals and large corporations who actually look at their career as if it's an entrepreneurial company. And you have this collaboration going on between entrepreneurs, not with a corporation, but with a particular individual. So I'll never involve myself in that world because it's not my world, but I'm really fascinated the skill with which entrepreneurs who have been in the who, not how world, lots of them for 10 years or 15 years, how easily it is for them to collaborate with someone inside of a corporation who's got a bigger picture for themselves and can visualize a much bigger result. Could you just reflect on that? Because the world is a big jungle and there's a lot of different sized creatures in it. You know, I just happen to be interested in a particular type of individual. But even our companies, I'm now getting the 40, 50, 100 million dollar company, you know, which are, they're not little teams anymore. So just talk about how this integrates into the whole world, you know, and you can see it in the political realm, you can see it in all sorts of other realms too, that people who are just good at playing with other people and have a bigger game they're playing are incredibly more successful than... Totally, absolutely. You remind me of a quote. So I was actually at Disney yesterday because I live down in Florida and I know that Paul, a guy on your team, is a huge Disney buff. So I was actually thinking about him. But there's a lot of Walt Disney quotes all over the wall, you know, at Disney. And this is a quote that I literally took a picture of. And then it taps right into what you were talking about. But one of Walt Disney's quotes was, Times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future. So I'm going to repeat that. Times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future. I think that's basically what you were talking about Mm -hmm. with people who become what Seth Godin calls linchpins in their organizations. And a linchpin is someone who becomes so irreplaceable that the company will essentially pay them whatever (laughs) they'll take because they're worth so much more than they help the company keep going. And I think that that's kind of the point. So there's a really good book called Tribal Leadership. Mm -hmm. I think you and I have talked about this book and it was done by research at USC, University of Southern California. But basically what the book does is it breaks organizations into different styles of culture. And what he found is is that most of the organizations in the U.S., business-wise, are what he calls a stage three culture. And a stage three culture is focused entirely on competition within. So it's where people are trying to climb the ladder and they're competing against the people within their organization to get up the ladder. And that's not very good for business when everyone in your organization is competing with each other rather than focused on the bigger vision and competing against the actual competition, which is other organizations. He said that most organizations fit in that category, and you can tell that an organization is in that way, first off, by the language of the organization and the attitudes, but second off, 
Well, so I'll just share the language real quick. The language in those organizations is I'm better than you. <laughs> you know, the communication style is, is that it's not collaborative. There's a lot of what he calls like dual communication where it's like, rather than me, you and Joe Polish talking, I would talk to just you. And then I would talk to just Joe, but I would never want the three of us to talk together because I want to hoard the relationship capital, <laughs> you know? And he talks about how those organizations are not as successful, you know? And it's because everyone's out for themselves. They're trying to enhance their own situation rather than the organization as a whole. And so, you know, the next level of organization, what they call stage four cultures are where everyone is unified on the vision mm -hmm. and they're collaborative within the organization and their focus can then be on the competition outside because everyone wants to move the vision of the organization forward. They're not competing with their colleagues or their coworkers. They all are bought into the bigger vision. And that's something that I've you know, spent a lot of time studying. I did my PhD studying what's called transformational leadership. And a big thing that transformational leaders do is, is they get individuals, but also the group as a whole to commit to the vision and they get their identity wrapped around that vision so that it's less about what they get for themselves and everyone identifies with the vision and they're following the leader. Mm -hmm. And obviously when you do that, individual results improve anyways, because they're not so focused on themselves, but organizations at stage four where they're collaborative inside so that they can actually focus on the outside and compete, they're far more successful. And so, yeah, I can see why any individual within an organization who's focused on the bigger picture of the vision of the organization and thinking about what the leader wants rather than thinking about their own skills would be so much more successful because the skills are going to be replaceable, but the person in their vision is not. So it's, it's really exciting. I would sense that that person would be more or less seen as irreplaceable. Because he's focused on teamwork. He's focused on bringing other people together. Uh -huh. you know. And, and in this world, you would want people on your team to essentially be mini leaders. And mini leaders work together with the group and they get the group yeah. moving forward rather than working in silos <laughs> and being hard to communicate with. And so a lot of what this who not how thinking is and about anyone, whether they're in an organization or as an entrepreneur, is, is bringing people together and getting teamwork happening. And that's really what Who Not How is all about, is teamwork. And I think that the problem with most maybe corporate individuals and maybe even corporate cultures is, is that they emphasize individual focus and maybe even individual success, mm -hmm. whereas those who succeed long-term are better at working in teams, leading teams, connecting with other people, and being more collaborative. Yeah. So those are the people, I think, who would succeed long-term regardless of their skills or the changes in the work environment. Yeah, it's really interesting. I came across an article which I communicated to all my workshops during the last quarter, and it was on Tom Brady of the New England Patriots, and arguably, you know, in the history of professional football, the most successful team. A lot of people argue he's the greatest athlete of all time, given his, yeah, definitely yeah. In football. So anyway, I think in the last 20 years, they've been to the Super Bowl nine times, which is really quite extraordinary. And they've won six times, which is really quite extraordinary. And they just uncovered a fact that he has foregone about $10 million of salary every year for the last six years. So it was $60 million that he's left on the table rather than taking 
the maximum that he could take, he leaves $10 million. And this is so that they can actually, in the free agent market, they can actually get really good backup players. Budget for better players, right? A budget for better players. And you can't get a lot of first-string players for $10 million, but you can get a lot of really good second-string players. And the teams that make it to the Super Bowl are the ones that withstand in a successful way, injuries to their first-line players. So he's basically setting aside $10 million to make the second string really powerful. It was kind of interesting because his father was in strategic coach for 10 years, Tom Brady Sr. Oh, my goodness. I didn't in know In Los that. Angeles. <laughs> now, I don't know if he's ever shared any of the coach concepts, but if I were to take a guess... Probably it entered into their teamwork as father-son and everything like that. But he seems to be unusually gifted at the bigger picture of what his sport is all about. And he's played longer as a first-level quarterback in a healthy fashion than almost anyone else. So my feeling is that he really gets protected by his owner, the manager, you know, the coach who's a legendary coach now just because of his success, but the other players, my sense is that he suffers fewer injuries because he looks out for them and they look out for him. So it's not just him out there doing his thing and then trying to maximize his contract. And he said, besides, he says, my wife makes more money than I did because she's a famous model. But the interesting thing about this, I mean, the conversation came up. He says, you know, there's five or six other quarterbacks in the league that make more money than you do. And he says, yeah, but generally they watch the Super Bowl on television. You know, and he said, I don't like watching the Super Bowl on television. I like being at the Super Bowl. And he says, my team members like going to the Super Bowl, too. So that's the big picture. You know, they start the year and their success is not how many wins they get. The success is down to that we're in the Super Bowl and we're leading and we win. And then everything else is either contributing to that or it's not there. I think we like sports, you know, just culturally. And this is worldwide. Every country has its favorite sports because this thing of people having a bigger vision about their dealings with other people and them just focusing what they can contribute and then taking advantage of what others contribute. I think it's a very human thing and I think basically it's why humans have succeeded so well in the world. You know, I just did 23andMe, which is the genetic test, you know, to determine where you come from. And it's kind of little. They got this little thing of how much Neanderthal you have in you. <laughs> I got little. I don't have a lot. 70% of people have more Neanderthal in them than I do. But I went back and I just looked at the Neanderthals, and it seems to me that there's no record, but they were side by side with each other, humans and Neanderthals, for tens of thousands of years. I mean, they sort of cohabited, so it wasn't like something wiping out something else, but they said that there were a number of things that the humans had figured out that the Neanderthals hadn't. And the first one's that the humans had already developed teamwork with dogs. Humans had dogs and the Neanderthals didn't, and that meant that there was a whole level of hunting, warfare, security, companionship, that humans had created a teamwork with another species. The other thing is that the Neanderthal women went into battle and they did dangerous hunting, and humans figured out really, really early, you know, if you want to have a continuing species, you don't put your women into dangerous situations. I mean, you can kill off your men any, any which way, but don't allow the women to be killed because the whole future of your race is that. 
And what they find, because they now have full skeletons of Neanderthal, at least the head, and they find out that their jaw was not suitable for language the way that the human jaw is, that something happened in the human development which allowed speech to happen very easily. So you can imagine just those three things there, teamwork with dogs, teamwork with women, teamwork with language, how that would be a transformative advantage exponentially transformative advantage over millennia. You know, it was just interesting. I said, you know, I'm proud to be a member of this species, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, anything and everything we've been able to do at the scale we have is because we've done stuff together, right? We survived, but I mean, the scale of which we can do things, whether it's flights or, you know, being on roads. I mean, we can do stuff because we do it as communities. You've told me your history, Ben, since... You were in graduate school, and then you made the decision, look, I've got to go entrepreneurial. One, I want to be a writer, and I want to be a writer about what I want to write about, and then I have to have a money-making enterprise. But just think about, for example, just your relationship with the platforms where a writer like you could actually put your writing out, and it could go worldwide, and what kind of cooperation When you think about all the people over the years who actually created the platform that was just the right thing five years ago for you to take your skill out into the world. I mean, quite apart from individuals, just the massive amount of cooperation it takes to create a platform like Medium. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's a humbling reality. And it's it's funny because in Western culture, we're so individualistic. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I tried to emphasize so much in Willpower Doesn't Work is that people focus on willpower and rugged individualism because, you know, we subjectively focus on individuals. That's why we focus on the hero like Tom Brady. But what Tom Brady's actually done... Is, is he's actually stepped himself backwards so that the whole team as a whole can go forward. He could rack up more individual stats, but he's more collectivist thinking. And it's just kind of going to your thought real quick, like literally our ability to communicate on this with our computers, with the internet, like we depend on so many things <laughs> that are mm-hmm. outside of our individual control. You know, we're the beneficiaries of this incredible context. And it's because of all the hard work and the connection and the collaboration of everyone else. So it's funny when people actually think that they're the cause of all of their results. Obviously, they can channel and they can tap into these networks, but we are so reliant on the teamwork of other people and all of their contribution. But I think you put your finger on a crucial element that there's got to be someone whose intentionality is greater than everybody else. In other words, that all human progress is because some people are more intentional and they can see a vision and they can put measurements to a future vision. doesn't exist yet. I mean, I was thinking about that with Disney yesterday, that there's hundreds of thousands of people that were there. And it made me think about Nikola Tesla's statement, like 50 years ago, or even 80 years ago, Mm -hmm. Walt Disney was living today. He was living in the 2000s. And now he's changed the world. Yeah. But he was living in the future, and he was radically intentional, and so now the future is his. It was very, very interesting because I've only been to a hotel at Disney World. I haven't actually been to the park, Disney World. But I was at Disneyland in Anaheim the second year that it was open because I was a big Mouseketeer fan, you know, the 1950s, you know. And actually, I met one of the Mouseketeers when she was 10 years older, because I ran half the entertainment program in South Korea for the U.S. Army, and she came on a tour. And it was very interesting to talk to her about her Walt Disney experience. And this was, her name was Doreen. And, you know, over the years, I've just used the internet to kind of figure out where she was. And 
This is a really interesting story, and I've not told this before, but I spent about three days with her, and we were touring different Army bases and Air Force bases. So I was just asking her, and she said, you know, I've come to the conclusion that my talent peaked when I was 12 years old. She was probably my age. You know, she might have been 23, 24 then. And she said, I haven't gotten any better since I was 12. But she said, when I was 12, I was better than 98% of other kids as far as the talent. She said, and I realize now that this trip I'm on to entertain the troops in South Korea, she said, this is my last entertainment in my life. And I have to go back and I have to start a whole new career now. So then, you know, I spent three days with her and, you know, it was nice and it was pleasant and she did a good job. I mean, she was better than you or me going up on stage and singing and she could dance and everything else. I didn't think about this for 20, 30 years. And then I looked her up on the internet one time and she had gone back and I think it was Warner Brothers and she had gone into their apprenticeship program to become a talent manager for Warner Brothers. And she spent from her mid twenties to her mid sixties. And she had Frank Zappa was one of the acts that she brought along. And I mean, she really, really became a great talent manager. And my sense is that there's been so many child stars who just get caught in the child star part of their life, and the whole rest of their life is trying to relive who they were when they were 12 years old and to have that thrill. It just struck me how realistic she was about how her talent was. And then I read a lot about her, that she was a great favorite of all the other Musketeers, and when they had reunions, it was generally Doreen. Tracy, Doreen Tracy was her full name. And then she died last year. She died of cancer last year. And she was really mourned, and she was a favorite of all the other Musketeers. So there was something about her that was very collaborative. I don't think it's a collective thing. I think it's a collaborative thing. You know, collective for me kind of means you've made everybody the same. Collaborative is really everybody is really unique, but they have a common purpose and they have a common vision. Yeah, it's more about just getting out of the individual mindset and thinking in terms of there's more of us working together, but I'm with you, of not trying to make everyone on similar ground, but more tapping into the unique talents of groups. Yeah, but the selective attention thing, so here's a question for you, because I talk to people, you know, about, well, you just focus on the one thing. And they bring up the question, well, how can I trust that other people will do what they're supposed to do? And I think this is the rugged individualism that is the ambition stopper and the progress stopper for entrepreneurs. Because, you know, they can talk about entrepreneurs being entrepreneurs, but if you look at the statistics, I just happened to catch up with some statistics for 2017 in the United States and there were 27,400,000 incorporated companies that year. 27 million? Yeah, 27,400,000 incorporated companies. But 27 million of them were five people or less. Okay. How many million? 27 million of the 27,400,000 were five individuals or less. Wow. And that means that the entire growth of companies, actually entrepreneurial companies, You know, I mean, our company, we have 130 in it, so we're not a small company. But the whole point is that willingness to trust that other people with unique ability are going to carry their part of it is really crucial to this who, not how. So the question I have is, how does one have to look at oneself? Because this is really 
the you know transformative leadership and the psychological grounding how do you have to look at yourself that you're thrilled that you can share a future vision with other people who have totally different abilities than you do so just a quick thought and then i'll jump into that so what i have heard dan and i think this whole 27 million i've heard that about 30 percent of the us and i could be off but i'm pretty sure it's 30 percent are freelancers at this point because of the internet. So many people are working from home and so many people are now consultants working for individual companies. So, you know, and I've heard that by 2025, over 50% of people are gonna be working from home as essentially consultants, rather than being a generalist working for one company, people are becoming specialists who basically work for multiple companies. And so the world is becoming far more entrepreneurial. And so these skills are radically important (laughs) because more and more people are gonna have to tap into whether it be, you know, outsourcing or or whatever. But anyways, as far as to answer your question, how a person needs to see themselves, just kind of speaking for myself and how I view my own team, I know you and I have talked a lot about the difference between delegating or pushing annoying tasks down (laughs) to who not howing, which is getting people who are excited to be on the team with you. And they have actually much greater skills than you do. Oh, a hundred times more. I mean, so I have two full-time assistants who work for me who are so much more systems oriented than I am. I love the creative stuff. I love ideating and envisioning and and communicating similar to you in a lot of ways. And they are so great with systems and processes and they love it. They love organizing my mess because I am a mess without their organizational skills. And so they love that. And so I think part of it is the abundance mindset. I know that you've got like, I think the 12 mindsets that are needed. Mm -hmm. One is abundance. And that's the idea of getting amazing people on your team. That's actually something I learned from Kevin Harrington is that a lot of businesses fail because they're not willing to get amazing people on their team. They're too cheap. And that's kind of, I think, more of the delegation mindset. Whereas who not how, you want to get the best. You want to get people who are amazing and excited about the vision. So I think part of it's abundance and part of it, is wanting to work with people who are excited. And one of the cool psychology ideas that I have is called a forcing function. Basically, it's the idea that you put yourself in a situation where you have to succeed. Eben Pagan calls it inevitability thinking, where you think and act as if the result you're looking for will happen because you've set up the conditions for it to happen. And I think that people who really get this, they're willing to put themselves in a situation, which includes the team, where they now are required to show up at the level they want to and just create the result. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, those are some of the mindsets. Yeah, well, I think the big thing, you know, to have a vision for the team requires that the leader has a vision for himself or herself, you know, and so... They've got to know where they're going, right? The intentionality. They've got to see the bigger and better. I talk about this in one of my books, in one of the small ambition series books, And it's about an experience I had when I was 11 years old, walking through the fields on the farm in northern Ohio, and an airliner went across, and we were in the flight path from New York to Chicago, Uh, probably could have been that, or Cleveland to Chicago. And I had what I can only describe as sort of a religious experience. And, uh, you know, I've read literature about people. It was like almost like a wham, I got this feeling. And a question came into my mind, which has really been the source code for probably my entire life. And the question came is, I wonder how far I can go. People say, well, you know, you've just completed 30 years. 
you know, of coach. This is the 30th year in about a month of strategic coach program, strategic coach company. And they said, so, you know, how are you feeling about it now? And I says, I have this question. I said, now I wonder how far I can go, <laughs> you know. And, because it's a new platform, yeah, right? Yeah. You're standing on a much bigger trajectory. Yeah, now. and it's like every three or four years or five years, we take a jump. Then I get to be 11 years old again. <laughs> you know, but I've got all these helpers. I've got all this capability around me. And every time we take a jump, I get to be more simple. As we've grown, I haven't gotten more complicated. I've gotten a lot simpler because I've gotten clearer that there's just certain things where I should be the who. And then I just surround myself with other who's. You're one of them. I mean, this whole project that we're doing on the big version, the big market, the worldwide market version of the Who Not How book. And I said, the moment I saw you, I said, bingo, I've been looking for this guy. I said, I've been looking for him for a long time. I don't know how you felt. I said, something says, eh. <laughs> you know, like it was like my brain was looking for something and you showed up. And it's kind of neat because, you know, I'm 44 years older than you are. And yet I've always just felt it's unique ability to unique ability. It doesn't matter your interest in certain things. And then we met Tucker Max, then we met Reed Tracy. And I said, oh, these are just other unique abilities. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. One of the big things you talk about is, is that the higher up the platforms you go, the more your vision is appealing to higher level who's yeah. and you know, and your vision of strategic coach and the capability of strategic coach at this point is so attractive, you know, to someone like me. I mean, I've been studying your work for the past five years, but since I've known you, I've watched strategic coach transform again and again, and I've watched your vision continually get more exciting. And so for me as a who, you know, jumping onto this vision and being a part of it, and then watching as the team continues to assemble, you know, as mm -hmm. far as increasing capabilities with Tucker, Reed Tracy, the other people who are currently we're not aware of who will join this team yeah. to move these books to millions of people. It's something to be excited about, you know, yeah. but I love that, that as your vision goes up, the capability of the who's you attract increases as well. Yeah. Anyway, we're at the witching hour here with this particular podcast. Just a few things, pickups from the book project that you got from this particular podcast episode. One, two, or three things that just occur to you now that add another several dimensions to your thinking about this particular chapter, actually. I loved your comments on Tom Brady. To be honest with you, I've been listening to comments on Tom Brady as well. And just thinking about putting the team before the individual and not worried about individual accolades, but the fact that Tom Brady's always in the Super Bowl, I think that that's a very important component, that people who really want to win big are more interested in collaboration than individualism. Ma'am. I think that that's a really great concept to dive into for people. For me, I'm just going to take the concept, and I said, you know, one thing I got in my workshop that I got from Ben in the partnership of writing the book is this concept of selective attention. Such a big one. Yeah, and I said, you know, this is how humans operate. Each of us sees something uniquely and to the degree to which we invest in our unique vision and then just do teamwork with other people with unique vision, it's exponential. I love it. I mean, you talk about 10X filter. That's selective attention. When you have a 10X vision, it becomes the filter through which you see and do yeah. everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. Beautiful. Have thank a great you, night. Have a great day. Talk soon.
Okay, bye. Thank you.